Good morning. It's good to gather at God's call. It is good to gather in God's house around God's word to worship him. Just a couple announcements as we begin. Women of the church are scheduled to meet uh, the 13th this coming Tuesday night at seven o'clock in the fellowship hall. Elders and deacons will have our annual joint meeting for the budget. Uh, the following Monday, October 19th, we'll meet at five o'clock in the fellowship hall. We have our Bible studies this week, the women's study on Wednesday night at, at um, excuse me, six, Sunday evening Bible study tonight at five. Um, and then we have a special announcement. We celebrate with Kermit and Linda on 50 years of marriage. So we praise God for that. So congratulations. So any other announcements? If not, our call to worship today comes from Psalm 71, verses 9 through 18. Let us be called into God's worship through his word. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him for no one will rescue him. Be not far from me, O God. Come quickly, O my God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. But as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteousness and yours alone. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, there are many times when each of us feels that we are weak, that our strength has been sapped from us, and that we are on the verge of being forsaken. As we gather here in this place today, Lord, remind us that you have not forsaken us. Remind us that you meet us in this place and in our life to be worshipped by us and to strengthen us. Lord, as we have gathered today here at your call, help us to remember your love, remember your strength, and remember to praise you to the generations to come. So, Lord, we offer our praises to you through the prayer that you taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please take that green book there before you in the pew, Bible Songs, and turn to Bible Song number 150, Progress by Divine Help. As the psalmist prayed out to God, he knew that God would answer and provide the help that he needed in the midst of his weakness. So let us stand and affirm and sing, although softly, the help that we get from God by standing to sing Bible Song 150.
Please be seated. Let us bow and hear our prayer of confession. Redeeming Heavenly Father, you have surrounded us daily with your goodness and mercy. You have forgiven our sins, covered us in the shining robes of the perfect goodness of your Son, and protected our souls through every trial that you call us to endure. We should fill each day with praise, adoration, and thanksgiving to you, but we are weak, selfish, and full of sin. We love the gifts that you give us far more than we love you, and resent you when you call us to suffer. We get angry with you when you do not answer our prayers as we wish, and we wallow in anxiety and fear that you will take away the good things in our lives that we love too much. Forgive us, Lord, for doubting your love and goodness and for finding joy and contentment in our own abilities, relationships, and possessions instead of in you alone. Father, please rescue us from our discontented hearts. Thank you for Jesus who endured deadly pain and suffering on our behalf without ever giving in to anger, fear, or resentment toward you. He was truly content in every situation, finding joy and peace in you during each moment of his earthly life, without grumbling or complaining. He had no earthly status or treasure, but valued your kingdom above all and never worshipped your creation instead of you. He trusted you completely, even when your plan took him to a brutal death, counting it joy to obey you. Thank you for the cross, for accepting his obedience in our place, and for giving us his record of perfect contentment and confidence in you. Holy Lord, we desperately need your help to think pure and excellent thoughts about you and accurate thoughts about ourselves. Open our eyes to see your kindness in the midst of our suffering and give us strong faith to believe that you love us when life is difficult. Remind us of the power of the cross, bathe us in the fountain of your forgiveness, and enrapture us with your beautiful Son. Steady our souls with pure, lovely, and noble truths about you, and grant us surprising peace as we cling to you 
our rock and our redeemer. Make us patient and joyful through trials. Those trials should come. Utterly content in your love and confidence that your grace will bring us home. In Christ's name, amen. Hear these words of assurance from Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Malachi was the last prophet to Israel before our Lord and Savior came. And he is calling Israel to faith and to repentance. Hear the word of the Lord. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? And God answers by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane my name by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Later on, Malachi goes on to talk about the tithes that are to be brought in, and we now have the opportunity to bring our tithes and offerings to the Lord. Please remember the Lord as you consider your budgets. Please remember his work in this world as you consider your tithes and offerings.
God and Father above, we do thank you for all that you have given to us, and we thank you for this opportunity to return a portion as our tithes, as our offerings. Lord, you have been faithful to these people and to this church, and we praise you for that. And once again, we praise you for the opportunity to give these tithes and offerings, hoping, praying that you are glorified, hoping and praying that what is given will be used to proclaim your name here in Fairley, in Greenbrier County, in West Virginia, in the United States, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain standing and take your hymn book, that maroon book there before you. Turn to hymn number 236, Spirit of God, Descend Upon Us. It is a a reminder of the promise that each of us has the Spirit upon them. But there are times where we do cry out to God for that extra measure of his presence through the Spirit. So let us remain standing and sing hymn number 236, Spirit of God, Descend Upon Us.
Please be seated. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to teach us truth and to remind us of the truths of the Scripture. So please join me as we profess those truths as given in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As we approach the Lord in prayer today, um, I lift up, we need, should, need to lift up Sierra. She broke um, either her leg or her ankle last week. Um, so you be praying for her. Wesley's also having some issues acclimating to the weather after being in the desert for a year. The the damp and the coolness is causing him some issues. Um, uh, let's see. Jason, Wesley's brother, had some elective surgery this week that he is recovering from. And one of Bob's uh, Bob's son-in-law, um, Rick, is that right? Yeah. yeah, Rick is having surgery coming up. So they went to visit him today because um, this will be the last opportunity they have to visit with him before the surgery. Um, so just be praying for the Carters and the Williamsons and the Ratliffs, the whole family there. Katie has bronchitis as well. Um, Don and Donna Farlow asked for prayer for travel mercies. They have some family and friends down in Greensboro. Um, Artie Chilton, we have prayed for in the past, was admitted to hospice care this week, so they've gone down to visit him. Um, also, Jean Umfleet, her mom, has is uh, 91, and they've gone to visit her as well as their friend Nancy Farlow has some skin cancer. So there's a lot going on with the Farlows as well. So please be praying for them. Um, Sadie, or Sadie, Shelby Dodd, I was just uh, told earlier, is waiting to hear back as to whether or not she tore a meniscus. So please be praying for her. Please continue to keep Roy in your prayers as he is struggling with his back issues still. Anna Pearson had surgery this week on her broken elbow, but... Last I talked to them, she's doing well and um, uh, recovering well from that. On a happier note, uh, Joni says hello to everybody. She hopes to be back around the middle of December. Um, and also my mom sends her greetings as well to her uh, her West Virginia family, as she calls y'all. So are there any other prayer requests or updates? Yes, ma'am. Hmm. Anything else? You're welcome. Thank you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father above, we are reminded that as the deer longs and pants for streams of clear flowing water, 
that our soul pants and longs for you. We thirst for your presence. We thirst for your comfort. We thirst for your strength. We thirst for those times where we can go and meet with you. And and prayer is the means for us to go and meet with you. Lord, we we come before you today, many of us um, weeping, many of us heavy, um, seeking your face, seeking your help, seeking your comfort, your strength, your healing. We do lift up all of these prayer requests that are here before us. We think of uh, Katie and Sierra and Wesley and Jason and Rick and ask that you would provide your healing, that you would provide your comfort, that you would provide your peace in those situations. And for those in the family that are still well, we pray strength for them as they seek to care for them. We pray for Betty and for Jennifer, Betty, as she goes for her CT scan tomorrow, and we ask for good results from that. And Jennifer, as she goes for blood work this week as well, and that you give her good results in that. Lord, we praise you for the almost five years that Jennifer has had free from her leukemia. And we ask that you would provide another good report and continue to provide healing for her. Lord, we lift up to you the Farlows and ask for travel mercies for them. We ask for um, grace with the Chiltons as they um, face Artie's uh, um, admittance into the hospice care and as they consider his mortality. And we ask for grace and strength in that situation for Jean Umfleet, for uh, Donna's mom, and just the difficulties that she is having um, uh, looking at this world as a 91-year-old. We ask that you would provide peace for her. We ask that you would provide comfort for her and allow Don and Donna to be instruments of that peace and that comfort that you bring for them to her. And we pray for Nancy Farlow as well with her skin cancer and ask that you um, provide healing for that and guidance for the doctors. We pray for Irina and for her father-in-law, and we ask that you... um, Uh, bring healing into his heart issues and uh, strength and comfort into the family. Lord, we lift praises to you for your faithfulness to Kermit and to Linda for these 50 years. And what a testimony that is in this world that um, takes such a flippant, light view of marriage. We thank you for the faithfulness that you have shown through them and through the many other long-term marriages that are um, represented here in this church. We thank you for your faithfulness to marriage, and we thank you for the reminder that marriage is of the relationship that you have between you and your people, that sacrificial love that Jesus gave to his church that is to be modeled in the husband and your church's submission to you as it goes about your work in this world as to be modeled by the wife. We thank you for our perfect bridegroom, our Lord and Savior who provides salvation for us, who provides for us the means by which we may truly seek to love each other and to love you. And Lord, we return to your psalm here and we remember that oftentimes it is from the depths that we call. It is oftentimes in the midst of feeling forgotten by you, that we cry out to you, but we know that you have not left us 
alone. Our hope is ultimately in you. Our hope is in the salvation that you have offered. Our hope is in the future that you give to those who are saved. And our hope is in the reality that the Spirit is with us, leading us, guiding us, strengthening us so that we might take those steps necessary to honor and to praise you. Lord, as we look at our world around us, it is easy for all of us to become discouraged. It is easy for all of us to to grow weary of the anger and vitriol, the hatred and the strife that just seems to plague our culture far more than the virus that is plaguing our culture. Lord, we we confess that we have attitudes toward our fellow human beings that are not honoring and glorifying to you. We confess that we look to people who do not view this virus in the way that we do, and we are tempted to anger and to fear. We confess that we do not put our hope in you in ways that we profess. For if we did, your church would be a bastion of peace in the midst of this turmoil. If we did, we would be the shining light on the hill, showing people how to live in the midst of our political turmoil, in the midst of our natural disasters, in the midst of a virus. Lord, strengthen us to put our hope in you. Strengthen us to be people of peace. Strengthen us to be people who pursue the good of your kingdom, while at the same time seeking to live as citizens of this earthly one. Lord, I lift up our government officials. We oftentimes think that it's the culture that reflects our government officials, so I do ask that you change their hearts, turn their hearts toward you, or at least turn their hearts toward a love for their fellow man. Help them set aside the one-upmanship Help them set aside the gotcha moments. Help them set aside their own glory and their own agenda and remind them that they are called to preserve your peace so that your people might worship in safety, so that your people might worship in peace. Remind us that we are to live the same peace with our fellow man and help us to seek the good of the community in which you have placed us. You reminded the Israelites in Babylon to buy homes, to start families, to interact economically for the benefit of Babylon. How much more should we seek to sow peace and prosperity in our culture? And so, Lord, help us to be people of peace, to be people of love, to be people who represent you well within our culture. And Lord, turn the hearts of this nation back to you. Lord, you are our only hope. Your gospel is the only message of peace that will have lasting significance. And before our culture changes, the hearts of the people in our culture must change. And that begins with us. That begins with our understanding of the truths of the gospel. It begins with our hearts being changed and our, and our conduct being changed as well. 
a conduct that sows love, a conduct that sows peace, and a a conduct that does not fall victim to fear. And so, Lord, help us once again to put our hope in you. Lift up our downcast souls. Help us to be not so disturbed by the world and to rest solely and completely in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. We are picking up today in Proverbs chapter 15. And we will be in chapter 15, verse 5. So the good news is after next week, we will be halfway through the book of Proverbs. The bad news is next week, we'll be halfway through the book of Proverbs. No, hopefully this has been as beneficial for you as it has been for me. We are today in Proverbs chapter 15, beginning in verse 5. Solomon opens up with this call to uh, pursue wisdom. It is in the negative, um, but it, it is a reminder. It is a signal whenever we see the relationship between either the son and the father or the wise person and the father or the fool and the father or the parent. Um, at other times, Solomon does mix in the mother as well. Um, it's a signal that we have a new section beginning. So hear the word of the Lord beginning in Proverbs 15.5. A fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. The house of the righteous contains great treasure, but the income of the wicked brings them trouble. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. Stern discipline awaits him who leaves the path. He who hates correction will die. Death and destruction lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. A mocker resents correction. He will not consult the wise. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but a heartache crushes the spirit. The discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. All the days of the oppressed are wretched, but the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, I do ask that you speak to us today through this word. I ask that you show us your glory, that you show us your way, that you show us your gospel. Help us to hear and to see you today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2 and 3, Jesus, through John, gives seven short letters to seven different churches, beginning with the church of Ephesus. They are churches uh, that, as they received the letters, they would have read them, probably copied the letter. Actually, the whole book of Revelation is a letter, even though it has these seven letters within it. Um, And then they would have passed it along to the next church in the list. It begins with Uh, Ephesus and moves its way geographically on through to Laodicea. But in these seven letters that we have, these seven missives within the second and third chapter of Revelation, Jesus points out to the churches, most of them, he commends them 
for good things going on within the church. Most of them, he also points out areas where they could likely improve, areas where they have faltered. But he wraps up each of the the letters with this call to overcome. And in this call to overcome, he offers rewards. Now, most likely for those seven churches, the call to overcome in that particular context meant to remain faithful to the message of the gospel, even in the face of either false teaching or in the face of persecution for all seven of those churches. Now, Solomon is also in today's passage giving his son a picture of what it means to overcome in his daily life and in our daily life. Now, Rehoboam was likely not to suffer persecution. At that time, Israel was secure. Israel was safe. And not a whole lot of people had the intestinal fortitude to try and persecute the king. There were dire consequences if you seek to persecute the king. But he would have opportunities to witness to God's goodness and faithfulness in the midst of the average, ordinary difficulties of daily life. Whether, as we'll look at, that's through lack and privation or through temptations to laziness. And for the most part, we are in a similar boat within our culture. This church, for the most part, does not have to worry about persecution. I think that is coming to our culture. I think that is coming to our community in the future. But for right now, we still have the opportunity to worship relatively peacefully. And so we, like Rehoboam, have opportunities to overcome, but it's through the daily difficulties and struggles of life. And so Solomon shows Rehoboam and us a way to overcome these difficulties through highlighting the danger to the fool and showing how contentment comes through wisdom. First, the danger to the fool. Once again, this is not a message that we have not heard already throughout the book of Proverbs. If you'll notice, we've talked before about how Solomon will oftentimes kind of talk in a cyclical nature as he as he hits a subject, as he moves on to the next and then moves on to the next and then comes back around and begins to talk about these things over and over again, sometimes from a different perspective, sometimes highlighting different aspects of the subject involved. So once again, he comes to the subject of danger for the fool and he opens it up with that first verse there, verse five, that says a fool A fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. In the parallel verse, verse 12, a mocker resents correction. He will not consult the wise. The problem, the danger for the fool spurns from his own heart. It flows out of his own resentment for correction. Correction here is an attempt for uh, a wise person that comes alongside the simple person or the fool or the mocker sees them on the wrong path and seeks to teach them the correct path and move them toward the correction, toward wisdom. And yet the mocker is one of three people mentioned in Proverbs who would fall under the heading of fool. The, the one is the simple, the young man who has been taught wisdom, the young woman who has been taught wisdom but has not yet had the opportunity to choose between wisdom or folly, but they are leaning toward folly, still correctable, still have opportunity for the heart to be changed. The fool, the second category of fool is the one who has walked in the way of folly for a time, but the heart is still open to change. The heart is still receptive to being corrected. It's a little bit harder than it would be for the simple, but the the opening is still there. 
And then the mocker is the one who has walked in folly for so long that it is likely too late for him or for her. Their heart is so hardened against the ways of wisdom. Their heart is so hardened, as we'll see in a few moments, against the fear of the Lord that they resent any type of what they perceive to be an attack upon their own way. They are wise in their own eyes. They are so sure that they are living their life the right way and the only way to go that when they are confronted with it, they they respond with hatred and with anger and with vitriol. And Solomon points out in this passage in the rest of the verses that, that this should be counterintuitive to the way life works. He says in verse 6 that the house of the righteous contains great treasure, but the income of the wicked brings trouble. If we look at life, we see under the normal action of life in this world that people who pursue wisdom have great treasure. We'll see in a few minutes that sometimes it's not material treasure, but there is great treasure within their house. Now, we need to rest on this word house for just a moment. When we think of house, we think of our four walls and our yard and our deck and the backyard so that nobody can bug us when we're resting, when we're relaxing. We've got our privacy fence and we have our castle with our moat around it. We have set up our house to be a place of isolation, to be a place of individualism. The same word that is translated house here can also be translated clan or tribe or community in other places within the Old Testament. The treasure that righteousness brings is not just treasure for me, but it is treasure that I have that I then share with the rest of the community. Paul talks about it to Titus, saying that it's you you teach the older women, the older, wiser women within the church to train and to raise up the younger women. You teach the older men within the church that are wise, that are mature in their faith to teach and to train the younger men within the church in wisdom. The treasures of wisdom are not meant to be held ourselves, but are meant to be encouraging and shared within the context of this house of the household of God, the treasures that come to those. But the deceitful person, the wicked person, the the mocker does have an income. And that income brings them trouble. The trouble comes in affliction. The trouble comes in the fighting for the wealth that comes along. It comes with pride. It comes with envy. It comes with discontent. We all know the person who has way more than they need, but act like they have nothing. They are so envious. They are so contentious for more that it just consumes them. And the more they get, the more trouble they have. It's because they have this wicked, prideful, idolatrous nature toward wealth. And this, once again, all of this together points to the wickedness, the difficulty of the heart, which is highlighted for us in verse 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. There's a focus on the worship and the conduct of the wicked. Verse 8 talks about the sacrifice of the wicked. We saw some of that in our scripture reading where where the the priests were going through the motions of worshiping God at the temple. 
But instead of bringing him the best of their crop, instead of bringing him the, the unblemished lamb, they were bringing him the sick, the dying, the blind, the blemished offering. The same thing is true here. Many times there are people who sit within the church. They, they worship in a way that appears to be well and good and God glorifying. But if their heart is not correct, if their heart is not right, God detests that worship. Detest is a word that we, that we read there and we don't like assigning to God. God doesn't hate anybody. God is love. But Scripture tells us that worship given with a wrong heart is an abomination to God. David puts it this way in Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. When we come together to worship, whether it is here in this place or whether you are sitting around your computer listening to this service, do you come to the worship with a broken with a contrite heart. Secondly, God focuses on the conduct of the wicked. The Lord detests the way of the wicked. When we see the way in the book of Proverbs, oftentimes we should consider it as a picture, as a summary of our conduct, of how we live. We trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understandings. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path or your way maybe talking more about your conduct than it is your decision-making skills. God will direct your conduct as you trust more and more in him. And Solomon says here that, that, the, abominate, that the, the conduct of the wicked, no matter how righteous it may appear on the outside, is an abomination to God. Why? Because their hearts are not broken. Their hearts are not contrite. And their hearts are exposed to God. Verse 11 tells us that death and destruction lie open before the Lord. These words, when put together, talk about the Hebrew thought of the realm of the dead, what we would consider to be the Greek idea of Hades or something like that. It's where the, it's where the dead reside as they await the final judgment. Can you and I see into that realm? Do you and I know what goes on there in the realm of the dead? No, we don't. If we did, it would cause it would solve so many theological arguments if we could actually see what that intermediate state looks like. But you know who can see into it? God, the Lord sees into that intermediate state. He knows everything that's going on there. And the argument here is if God can see into the intermediate state, if he can see into death and into the grave and know what goes on there, how much more open is our heart to him? How much more open is our desires and our motivations? How much more can he see them? You know, we may fool each other. I can stand up here and profess and preach well, but you ultimately do not know the state of my heart and I do not know the state of yours ultimately. I can make a pretty educated guess based upon what scripture tells me your life should look like. And you can make a pretty good educated guess about me based on what scripture says my life should look like. But I don't ultimately know. You can fool me. I'm, I'm, you know, as, op, as pessimistic as I am, I, I, I'm a pretty trustworthy person. 
Not trustworthy, trusting. Oh, I hope I'm trustworthy too. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt most times. I'm a pretty trusting person. But I've been wrong a lot and I will be wrong a lot. But you know who isn't wrong about the state of your heart, about the state of my heart, and that is God. God knows whether my worship is detestable to him or pleases him. God knows whether my conduct is detestable to him or is one or is conduct that he loves. Because he knows my heart. And he knows the one who has changed my heart. He knows the process that went through. He ordained the process that was put in place so that my heart of stone, which leads to worship and conduct that he detests, could be changed to a heart of flesh. So that I would love him. So that I would pursue his way. So I would have that broken and contrite heart that is necessary for my worship and my conduct to be pleasing to him. To overcome our circumstances, we must have a broken and contrite heart before God. And while many of the wicked look good on the outside, you and I, God cannot be fooled and he will punish, we're told in verse 10, those who continue to reject his wisdom. And so as we have looked at the danger for the fool, let us also turn now to contentment through wisdom. Verses 16 and 17 of this chapter introduce us to a little bit of a different type of uh, proverb than we've really looked at deeply so far, and it's the better is this than that type of proverb. Verse 16 and 17 say, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better is a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. And these better is this than that Proverbs are meant to make us stop and think. They give kind of these broad principles that end up on either end of what we would think of as a spectrum. And they're, they're designed there to make us stop and think, say, okay, we've, we've got these broad principles on either end of a spectrum. How does that work out in life? This is discernment. This is the pursuit of wisdom. It's, it's taking these principles and saying, okay, what, what do I think God or Solomon, God through Solomon meant when he said better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil? Well, one of the things he meant is what we touched on a little bit earlier. In the normal realm of life, most people, if you follow the path of wisdom, you can build for yourself, at least in our culture, a nice little nest egg. If you if you put away a little bit every month, every week in a savings account or in a decent investment account, after a period of 20, 30, 40 years, you should have a nest egg with which you can retire. Young people, start now. Don't wait till you're my age. It, I've got to put away a lot more than you do now. But, you know, things happen in this world. We live in a fallen world. We talked about in Sunday school today that Satan is out there ravaging like a lion, seeking to see who he can devour. And sometimes stock markets crash. Sometimes storms happen. Sometimes family members die. Sometimes medical bills come along and and things don't always work out the way that we think they should. And, And Solomon says in those times, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. And he follows it up. He expands on it. He says, better is a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. You know, part of that turmoil that comes with wealth oftentimes, and I want to 
put this out here once again. I've said it before. Wealth is not bad. Poverty is not better than wealth. Poverty doesn't make you necessarily more godly. You can, I, you can put material things as an idol as much as a person who is in poverty as you can as a person who is in wealth. It's the heart. It's that idea there. But oftentimes, one of the things that comes with wealth is fickle friends. It's the trouble and turmoil and envy and and uh, destruction that we talked about a few moments ago. And that's what Solomon's talking about here. He said, you know what? You could be a lot better off as a person with nothing who has the fear of the Lord than being the wealthiest man or woman alive and hate God. Because there's a lot of turmoil with that. There's a lot of there's a lot of of uh, of future fear and future destruction that awaits those who might have the super large party with a lot of people and yet has no friends. We talk about little with the fear of the Lord. We talk about a meal of vegetables. It's the it's the picture of you and all your closest friends gathered around a Wendy's side salad. One, not one for each of you, but one Wendy's side salad. You're better off with the love in those relationships that flows out of the fear of the Lord than you are with the most wealthiest person in the community who throws a party and everybody's just there to keep up appearances and they don't like each other. And brothers and sisters, we've all seen it. We've all seen that group of people who gather around the party with the silver laid out, with the expensive china, with the best cuts of that Japanese Wagyu beef that's like $150 an ounce or something like that. And there's just backbiting, there's gossip, there's hatred. And yet you turn to like the the Cratchit family in The Christmas Carol. They have almost nothing. And yet there's joy, there's peace, there's contentment. That's the picture that Solomon has here. He says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord. Better is a meal of vegetables where there is love than great wealth with turmoil. And the idea here is contentment. It's that deep, deep satisfaction in God. Regardless of your circumstances, it's not this stoic ignoring of the emotional response to circumstances because God has given us our emotions. God, God has given us the means and the ability to lament when things are bad. It's not necessarily good to have a family of 10 people gathered around a windy side salad. But there can be contentment there. There can be satisfaction and total and complete rest in God in that situation that comes through a heart that is changed by the fear of the Lord, that comes through a heart that is changed by love, both love of God and love of neighbor. It's a contentment oftentimes that eludes those who pursue wealth for wealth's sake. If you are pursuing something because you think that one thing will make you content, if it's not God, it will fail you whether it's relationships, whether it's wealth, whether it's food, whether it's cars, whether it's property, whether it's money, whatever it may be, if it is not God that you are pursuing to make you content, it will fail you. And Solomon gives us two examples here. 
He gives us the hot-tempered man who stirs up dissension, which we looked at a little bit in the previous section where we talked about the gentle answer that turns away wrath, but the harsh word that stirs up anger. The person who has the fattened calf with hatred or great wealth with turmoil can be a very angry, cantankerous person. And they want everybody to be just as angry and cantankerous as they are. So they stir up dissension. But the man who is content, the man who is patient, can calm a quarrel, can calm those arguments, can calm those fights. Oh, brothers and sisters, that we were so much better in calming the cantankerous nature of our culture right now. Oh, that we were so much better at bringing peace to our world. But many of us are hot-tempered and we stir up dissension because we seek contentment in places other than God. The second example that he gives us here is the sluggard versus the upright. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. The sluggard is somebody we've had, we have uh, um, been introduced to and talked about already. We'll meet him or her again as we go continue throughout the book of Proverbs. The slugger is the, is the person who is uh, professionally lazy. It is the person who knows that it's time to go harvest, but refuses to do harvest. He doesn't make hay when the sun shines. She, she takes a nap while the sun's shining and the, as the hay rots in the field. The sluggard is one whose way is blocked by thorns. They may know where they can find a meal. They may know where they can find work, but all they see is the obstacles between here and there. And they could be the teeniest, tiniest of obstacles. They can be made up obstacles, but that's all they see. And so they don't go anywhere. But the upright man, the, the person who fears the Lord, will look at the path that they have to go to get from point A to point B. And yes, they see the obstacles. They admit the obstacles. But they still see a wide open highway between point A and point B. Why? Because they're content in the Lord. And we're reminded in verses 13, 14, and 15, once again, that this involves a heart change. Verse 13 says, a happy heart. I'm not sure I like the word happy, but people who are smarter than me did this, translated this. Happy here would better be the rejoicing heart. Makes the face cheerful. Uh, Cheerful there is the countenance of beauty, a countenance of festivity. Um, somebody who has that smile on their face. If you have a heart that rejoices in suffering, as Paul says, yes, you still lament because suffering happens, but you know the joy comes in the morning and that shapes your heart, you will have a cheerful face. But heartache, when we can only see suffering, when we can't see the joy that comes on the other side, it crushes the spirit, but it takes a worshipful, a rejoicing heart. The discerning heart seeks knowledge. We've talked about the relationship between knowledge being its own reward and that the wise person knows what they don't know. They know that there is more knowledge, more wisdom out there to be found. There are more ways to apply the knowledge and wisdom that they have gained so that they can continue to grow in knowledge and in wisdom. The discerning heart seeks more knowledge. The discerning heart wants to know more about God, wants to know more about his love, wants to know more about his wrath, wants to know more about his justice, his judgment, his grace, and his mercy. 
and how to apply those things in his life and in the world around him. But at the mouth of a fool is happy. He feeds on his own folly. Uh, the, the rejoicing heart is also the discerning heart, is also the cheerful heart. Cheerful not only means that festive countenance, but it also means generous and beautiful. While all the days of the oppressed are wretched, the one with a cheerful heart has the continual feast. Doesn't deny the oppression that happens, doesn't deny the poverty that comes along, but that rejoicing, that discerning heart becomes festive and generous as well as the face. And because of that contentment in God, they have the continual feast. So Solomon reminds his son, you will have opportunities to testify to God's goodness in your life. And he reminds him that he is to overcome the difficulties of this life, even the daily boring ones, with contentment. So Solomon has shown the danger to the fool and he has called his son to pursue contentment. How do we pursue contentment? The answer is given to us in 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, verse 8. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church here. He has dealt in 1 Corinthians with at least 20 different problems um, that were in the church. He is writing 2 Corinthians to commend them for the great work that they have done in most of those areas and then also to remind them to tweak some other areas. And he here is talking about their tithing, their giving, their supporting of other churches who may be in the midst of a famine situation. And in the midst of reminding them about their duty to give and to be generous because God has been generous to them, he says this, he says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Other places in the New Testament, that phrase, all you need, is translated contentment. So we could read this this verse as, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having contentment, you will abound in every good work. What makes us content with the world? What makes us content with what God has given us? It's It's a past focus, a present focus, and a future focus. The past focus is remembering what God has done for us. One of the things that Paul tweaked for the Corinthian church was their celebration of the Lord's Supper. They were doing it wrong. But he went back to Jesus' words from the Gospels and he said, you know, do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. The Lord's death reconciles us to God. We can have contentment in this world because we are reconciled to God through the past work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His work on the cross has made it so that God is no longer angry with us. God no longer detests our good works if our hearts have been changed, if we have embraced that truth with with faith and with trust. The future focus of our faith is is that as Paul says in one of his letters, I consider everything that I go through today. Now let's think about what Paul went through. He he was stoned. He was imprisoned. He was thrown out of a city and left for dead. He was attacked. He was beaten. All these things that we probably won't go through. He said, I count them as nothing 
compared to the glory that awaits me. Through the grace of God, through the work of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we find contentment in our reconciliation with God through the cross. We find contentment in the future work of being glorified and living eternity in the presence of God. We also find it in present grace. He says in Ephesians that God is at work within us right now through his grace, working those things that we think are impossible. And Paul affirms that here, God is able to make all grace abound in you. Right now, today, that grace abounds in you. The grace that gives you contentment in the midst of the difficulties of life, the grace that strengthens you to overcome and to testify to God's goodness in the midst of your average, everyday struggles and difficulties, whether it be illness, whether it be money, whether it be family strife, whether it be political worry, whether it be a pandemic, everything you need to be content is at work within you right now. And Paul says, because of that, be content. The reality is that we have it within ourselves to be content. Well, not within ourselves, within the grace of God that resides within our heart to be content. Paul says, go do it. Be content. Rest in the past work, rest in the future work, and rest in the present work of the grace in your life. And the world will see you overcoming through wisdom. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, drive that truth home to us. Drive that truth that we are reconciled to you, that our hearts have been changed, that instead of a heart of stone, we now have a heart of flesh. Drive the future hope that we have of the glories that await us into us. And drive the present reality of the gospel at work within our hearts right now to lead us to contentment. Use those things to drive us, to take the step into contentment that you call us to. Lord, remind us of the dangers when we pursue folly rather than wisdom. And Lord, help us to see the good things that you have given to us so that we might be content, whether in plenty or in want. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn today comes from the hymn book. It is hymn number 132. All hail the power of Jesus' name. When we are tempted to discontentment, we fly to the cross. And we rest in the power of Jesus' name. So let us stand and sing hymn 132. All hail the power of Jesus' name.
you go this week, take this blessing upon you. May the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be with you all. Amen. We pray with the saints. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.